You are listening to the Passion City Church DC podcast. To learn more about Passion City Church, including our gathering times in Atlanta and Washington, DC, visit us online at passioncitychurch.com. Today's talk comes from Pastor Ben Stewart. Well, as the world opens back up and as the city opens back up, I felt like we need to address something that I've been hearing a lot lately, anecdotally after church. And that is people visiting saying that this is a very unfriendly city. I've heard that several times over the last few weeks. So I did some detailed research. And Real Simple Magazine published a survey on the rudest cities in America. And we were number three right behind New York and LA. According to Real Simple, we're ruder than Baltimore people. Baltimore, <laughs> really? Travel and Leisure Magazine began a piece a few years ago entitled The 15 Unfriendliest Cities in America. And it began the article by highlighting our city. Opened with a quote from Michaela Hall who admitted that people in Washington, D.C. don't always make a good first impression. Michaela said, we avoid making eye contact, we bump you without saying excuse me, and we wear earbuds to drown out any questions you might ask. (laughs) Because being polite takes time, says the D.C.-based travel blogger, and most of us are employed by government agencies, nonprofits, and some other entities set on saving the world, so in the morning, we're in a rush to make a difference. Get out of my way! I'm trying to make the world a better place. That's our town, right? Now, uh, here's the thing. It's not my goal to make D.C. the friendliest place on earth, all right? I don't care if we're Disneyland or not. I can't control that either, what D.C. is going to become. So I can't really determine that. But the question that does land is, what are the people of Jesus meant to be in a city including D.C.? Are we meant to just absorb a culture? Are we meant to transform a culture? Are we meant to just take in everything undiluted from the community we're around? Are we meant to be agents of change in our community? I don't know how to control out there, but I think Jesus has a lot to say to us in here about who we are meant to be as we move along this great city. And Jesus is going to say something radical about how to be a city on a hill, a beacon of hope, in a hurting world. He says, you've heard it said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Now, what's interesting is there's not a Bible verse he's quoting. Earlier, he was quoting a lot of Old Testament texts. This one, he says, you've heard it said, love your neighbor, hate your enemy. The Old Testament never says hate your enemy. But it did say in Leviticus 19, you shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And so what people did is they read that and they said, oh, you're supposed to love your neighbor. Neighbor equals your own people. That means your friends or your tribe like you. Okay, so my obligation under God is just to love my tribe, my people, my crew, and who cares what happens to the rest of them? So they sort of took that to mean, I'm a loving person if I love the people who love me or look like me or make roughly the same amount of money as me, and it doesn't really matter what happens to the rest of them, but if they come at me, doom on them. And so that's the way people had interpreted the Old Testament. Jesus said, you heard that said, and he says, but I say to you, love your enemy and pray for those who persecute you. It's natural for us to say, hey, love radiates out into my inner circle, right? And I have indifference for those I'm walking by and hate for my enemy. And Jesus says, no, love moves all the way down the line. From friend to acquaintance to enemy, 
The people of Jesus extend love, not hate. We don't hate our enemies. We love them, which sounds nice, but it's really a hassle. Can we just say that? Because here's the thing, and let's be real about this, though a lot of people don't like to admit it. We like hating people. We enjoy it. Why do you think so many articles are filled with outrage? Because they know we gobble them up. We love them, right? Uh, Tim, I don't know how to say his name, Chrysler? Potentially. Uh, is an op-ed writer for the New York Times. Uh, and he concedes that his job requires him to be, quote, professionally furious. And this is what he says. He says, so many letters to the editor and comments on the internet have this tone of thrilled vindication. These are people who have been vigilantly on the lookout for something to be offended by, and they found it. Some part of us loves feeling right and wronged. But outrage is a lot like other things that feel good, but over time devour us from the inside out. Except it's even more insidious than most vices because we don't even consciously acknowledge it's a pleasure. We prefer to think of it as a disagreeable but fundamentally unhealthy reaction to negative stimuli like pain or nausea rather than admit it's a shameful kick we eagerly indulge again and again. It's outrage porn selected specifically to pander to our impulse to judge and punish to get off on righteous indignation. That there is a place for righteous anger, a righteous justice, a righteous indignation, that God is rightfully angry when he sees injustice. Our problem is we sort of like righteous indignation, and then we just sort of scooch God off his throne, and we sit on it and say, you know what? I want self-righteous indignation, namely, the greatest sin you can produce is offending me. And we take a good impulse and we twist it into selfishness and the world becomes an ugly place. And yet, I think it starts by us acknowledging, hey, the problem with getting rid of hate is we kind of like it. Some of you go, well, Ben, I don't know. It's that furnace of anger keeps me warm on the inside, right? <laughs> John Wick made $580 million at the box office, right? John Wick, they killed his dog and wrecked his car so he murdered 300 people and counting in the series. And we love it. There's something about us that loves vengeance, right? And let's be honest, it's useful. It's useful. It's, it's an economic engine. I mean, we're like Monsters, Inc., right? What happens in Monsters, Inc.? They realize, hey, if you stir up fear and outrage, it'll power our industry, It'll power the media. It'll power politics. Our whole city will be lit up and powered by fear and anger. So let's keep investing in fear and anger. All you have to do is make sure and not look at the cost on our children. But as soon as they see what it does to the kids, they realize this driver of fear and anger is driving us in a bad direction. And maybe we need to find a different way. And is it possible that love is a greater economic engine, a greater way to live life, than all the anger and all the hate. And as the gates come down around the Capitol, we have to find a different way to treat each other. Right? And so how do we do it? Is Jesus' statement here to love your enemies just pie-in-the-sky sentimentalism? You look at him and say, well, sure, you launched a movement that changed the world, but you're not being realistic. Or does he really have something to say that can really change society forever? So here's what I want to do. 
At this point, I could tell a lot of stories about really grand gestures of forgiveness for deep offenses. And and to be honest, I've given multiple sermons like that here, but Jesus does something fascinating in this text. He puts it right down on the street level of how you deal with every day. So I don't want to talk necessarily today as much about the greatest human offenses possible. I want to talk about the daily irritations and the daily indifference, because Jesus touches on it here. And to do that, I want to ask and answer three questions. Number one, if you're looking at this and going, okay, we're supposed to love our enemies for the sake of the children. All right. Who's our enemy? What does loving them entail exactly? And then why would I do that? These are three natural questions. All right. You're saying enemy. Who are you talking about? What exactly do I need to do to love them? And why on earth would I want to do that? So who's your enemy? I'm just going to look at this text and give some definitions of it. The word enemy by definition is the person who's against you. The person who wants to see you fail. The person in the office who smiles at you but is hoping to see you go down because they want your job. Or anything like that. Or the person who wants to cut in front of you in their car or who wants to make sure you don't get to merge, right, but won't make eye contact with you. You know that guy that's like, I'm clearly being uh, unkind, but if I don't acknowledge you, it's not real. Oh, it's real, and I'm really about to hit you, son. (laughs) Synonyms in the text, there are many. He uses the word those who persecute you. Persecute means to run after you, to chase you, someone who's coming at you. He used the word evil. That was someone who does something wrong or does something wicked. He used the word unjust. That's someone who doesn't do the right thing. So it's not just those who are actively doing wicked, but see the just and right thing and just avoid doing it. He talks about tax collectors. And in that context, they were the people that would exploit others for selfish gain. And then he used the word Gentiles. That's just the word ethnos for the nations. Basically, it's, it's people who care about their tribe and don't care about you. So when he's talking about enemies, he's talking about all these kinds of people. And Jesus used examples. I didn't read a couple text uh, verses before that, but he was talking about those who persecute you. He says to love those who slap you. Love those who sue you. And then in our text, he talks about greeting people. Did you notice that? Love your enemies. How, Jesus? By greeting them, saying hi to them. And so he counts among enemies those who don't say hi to you. So notice enemy here in Jesus is not just the persecutor, but the person who also acts like you're not alive. Not just the person who slaps you, but the person who snubs you. Not just the person you're indignant at, but the one who ignores you as they get onto the metro. Now, let me say with this, is it wrong to have enemies? Some of you say, man, I don't have any enemies. Not only is it not wrong to have enemies, if you have no enemies, it means you stand for nothing. We're meant to have enemies. Jesus said it earlier in this same Sermon, blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you on my account. He says, when you associate with me, there will be people that don't like you. And when that happens, you're blessed. So Jesus is counting on you having people who don't like you. He said it later in Matthew 10, if they call the master of the house Beelzebul, the father of demons, how much more will they malign those in his household? If they persecute me, they'll persecute you. He says, you got to decide if you associate with me, there's going to be people who hate me. So if you link up with me, they're going to hate you. He said in John 15, if you were of the world, the world would love you as its own, but because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. And I underlined that last part. The world hates you. 
It's just such a dramatic thing to say. Okay, Jesus, the world may hate you, but he says, woe to you when all men speak well of you, because that's how their fathers treated the false prophets. Does everybody like you? You probably don't stand for much, and you're probably not going to make much of a difference in the world. But if you stand for something, you're ready to meet some opposition. So now let's move to number two. What does love entail? If there's people who are going to come after me, oppose me, persecute me, be rude to me, how am I supposed to love them? Well, let me give you three things in a bit. Uh, The first one's the bit. I would just say you speak the truth to them. And it's just the answer to the question. I think a lot of people say love means you just accept someone right where they are and don't challenge their ideas whatsoever. And to that, I would say, have you ever read the Sermon on the Mount? Jesus is actively offending you at every turn. So love does not mean accepting anybody's philosophy about anything. Actually, love might equal confrontation. And you know that. Who's your true friend? Your true friend is the one who will risk the relationship, wade into the awkward to say, are you going to go out dressed like that? I think you might want to reconsider that option. Your true friend is the person who's going to press in to your failures, press into your brokenness, not because they want to exploit it, but because they care and want to see the best drawn out of you. The lover hates the evil in the beloved. So out of love for the beloved, they will address the evil, even if it's awkward to do so. So Jesus in love speaks the truth to us in the sermon, right? So that's one of the first ways to love is you just You're truthful with people. It's a way to love. But I want to focus more on the things Jesus says to do to love. He gives us three things that are so practical and earthy to your enemies. What do you do with that neighbor you can't stand? Number one is you pray. Verse 44, but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. You see the parallel? Love your enemy, that one who persecutes you, pray for them. So the first way to love somebody you don't like is to pray for them. And I want you to notice that it doesn't say pray against them. Lord, I just pray you would smite my neighbor. I just pray that you would cast them out. Like, it doesn't say that. It says you pray for them. The one who persecutes you. Now, they can persecute you through an article. I don't know. Some of you read articles and you get really offended. And it's just like, the internet's offended me today. I like to scroll up to the name. And I like to look at their face. And Jesus says, when you read that byline and see their face, you pray. You pray. Pray against them? Nah, you pray for them. Well, what are you supposed to pray? Well, for his Jewish audience, they would have instantly thought the greatest prayer in the Old Testament. The Lord bless you. The Lord keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you, be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. I want you to imagine the person you hate right now. I know you don't hate anybody, but you know. The person that you really dislike strongly. The one who makes your teeth clench. A little bile come up into your throat. Oh, it burns. You got some gum? Did you bring gum? And I want you to imagine praying, Lord, bless them. Lord, let your face shine on them. Lord, give them peace. Or you could take Jesus' words in this same sermon a little bit later. He says, and when you pray... Pray our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. 
I want you to practice that this week when someone annoys you. Say, Lord, would you make a way for them to hallow your name, that they would revere you? Lord, would you let your kingdom come in their life, that your will would be done in their decisions? Lord, I pray that you would provide for them their needs because they're a human being that needs food and water and love and hope. I pray, God, you'd provide for them. Lord, I pray you'd forgive them because they know not what they do. Lord, I pray you would change them in a way that they could be a forgiver of others, that you would so transform their heart that you would forgive them of their trespasses and they would forgive those who trespass against them. And Lord, I pray you would lead them not into temptation. I pray you would deliver them from evil. To do that, you have to see the beauty of someone made in the image of God. And you got to see them as a victim of sin, not just a perpetrator of it. That doesn't mean you deny that they've not perpetrated evil. Every person has. But you can pray like Jesus, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. They knew what those nails were doing when they drove him into the cross. But they didn't understand the full implications of their murder of the Son of God. And so Jesus looks at their beauty in the image of God and their profound ignorance. And he doesn't say their ignorance makes them innocent. He says, Father, forgive them because they don't know what they do. And we can look at our enemies and say the same. Father, forgive them. Father, change them. Lord, would you bless my enemy in Jesus' name? Just start there. You don't even have to talk to your enemy at that point. You don't have to make eye contact. You can do that in the privacy of your own home. I've told the story many times here. When I first started preaching, I, I didn't necessarily set out to travel and preach. I was leading a little youth group, but I got invited to preach at one place and then another and another and on and on it went. And I kept showing up at these different places. And apparently I was filling in for some preacher that had moved to a different town. I didn't know this, but I was apparently his relief pitcher. And so it became a common practice for me early in ministry that I would preach a sermon and they would come down afterwards and say, oh man, that was a great message. Hey, but do you know so-and-so? And they'd name his name. And they would say, man, he's good. I mean, like every time he spoke, I mean, before the intro's over, I'm weeping and repenting and giving my money to the poor. And I'm like, that's great. That's wonderful. I'm so glad to hear that. And on and on it would go. Just people coming up to celebrate him, praise him, glorify. And after a while, it's like, you know what? I freaking hate this guy. I can't stand this whole interview. I began to dread hanging out with people. I started preaching angrier. And then I realized I don't like what this is doing to my heart, right? Resentment does something terrible to you. And I didn't know a way out of it. How do you get out of it? And I realized, well, maybe I just pray for him. And I started praying, and, and, and the guy was a preacher like me, so I could envision him in the study trying to work out a sermon. I knew what that felt like. So I started praying that God would bless him in the thing he was trying to do and not sure if he could accomplish. I started praying for him that God would teach him things he didn't know. God would give him insight. And then I started praying for his family and his relationship with his wife because I was married and I know the trials and challenges of marriage and trying to grow and flourish in marriage. I started praying for his marriage. I started praying for his kids. I would, I would weep sometimes asking God to bless his life. It was the weirdest thing. Not only did the hate melt away, a sincere love took its place. So that when we met, I loved him like a brother. And I still do. And it's not because I'm so great. It's because maybe Jesus is onto something here. Pray for those who persecute you. Because it just may change their hearts. And it just may change yours too. Here's the next one that's crazy. 
greet them. Greet them. This is my favorite. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? He says, if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? If you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? He ties love to greeting people, saying hi to them. I love that because it instantly cuts out our pious professions of love for all humanity. I love the world, but I'm not going to make eye contact with my neighbor. I'm not going to say hi to the people at work. I'm not going to bother to be interrupted by the people I see on the street. Jesus pushes past all of my hypothetical love for humanity and says, all right, but how do the real people I put next to you feel? So there's a lot of us in this town that, like Michaela said, are out there to change the world, but don't have time for the humans God put around us. And Jesus is like, I don't care about that. I want to know, did you greet somebody or not? Did you say hi or not? Which sounds so small. We expect Jesus to say, give all of your money away from the poor. Sacrifice your body to be burned. And he says, say hi. And you're like, that's too small. But how are you doing at it? I dare you to say hi to 10 people you don't know tomorrow. I dare you, church. After one, you're going to go, this is stupid. The pastor's not going to check up on me. He doesn't know. I'm going to say hi to one person. That was dumb. I'm not doing it again. Like, you're going to have trouble doing it. And I got to tell you, you will suddenly be put in touch with your own pride and selfishness. But Jesus says, hey, what if, regardless of how they treat us, we're kind to other people? Because when you greet somebody, what do you do? When you look them in the eye, you acknowledge their humanity. You are a person. See, the devolution of society doesn't start with physical violence. And it doesn't start with verbal assault. It starts with an emotional inhumanity. I just don't even acknowledge you as human. And as soon as I dehumanize you, then I can be inhumane to you. So don't lose what Jesus is doing here. He is paddling upstream and saying, we're changing it up here. For the glory of God and the good of the culture, say hi. And it doesn't matter if they say hi back. Acknowledge the humanity of somebody that they are worthy to look upon. Because that changes the society. Polycarp, the bishop of Smyrna, one of the early church fathers, he was discipled by John. Polycarp's soldiers came to kill him, and he knew what they were doing because they had been looking for him. They were going to arrest him, take him into the Colosseum, and all be entertained by the murder of the bishop of these Christians. And when they finally showed up at his door, do you know what Polycarp did? He fixed them refreshments. He said, You guys have been looking for a while, you must be hungry. He got them something to drink. And while they sat and ate and drank, he prayed for them. And those around reported those soldiers suddenly felt really bad about the fact they were about to kill this guy. Because they realized every time we come for somebody, they spit at us, curse, bite, kick, punch. This guy knows we're his enemy from the jump, and he's kind. And let me tell you something. That's how hearts changed in Rome. That's how the name of Jesus became honored and changed a culture. It's because people saw we have a source of love beyond what they understand. And where did it start? Greeting, kindness, generosity. One of my favorite things about this church is that so many people land here and stay because they say, when I showed up, people were nice to me and I felt like they meant it. And we tell our door holders that all the time. If you're rude, if you're on your phone and don't care and bump past people and whatever, 
and then I get up here and talk about the inexhaustible love of God, we're going in opposite directions. But when you choose to be kind, and then we preach about the kindness of God, it makes it easier to believe. So what you're doing by greeting people is eternal soul rescuing work. It really is. And a relationship may begin here that gets very real later, where you can talk about deeper things, but it starts with kindness. I've told the story before. The first youth ministry uh, I, job I got right out of college, I had this little bit of youth group, and I remember one kid had come to Christ in our youth group because his sister brought him, friends brought them, et cetera, a really beautiful story. And he showed up one day, so excited about growing in his faith, couldn't tell, wait to tell me this story about church. He walked in, he was like, Ben, you're not gonna believe this. He said, I was at lunch at their high school, and he said, I saw a sister up against the wall, because that's what he called all Christian women, sisters, because that's what the Bible does. He said, I saw a sister against the wall, and there was this guy kind of hitting on her, but you could tell he was making her uncomfortable, like she was against the wall, and he was kind of like up on the wall, like in her face. And he said, I could tell this whole vibe was weird. He said, so I just walked over there and was like, hey, aren't we in the same class together? Let's go. And he kind of rescued her out of this awkward moment. And he told me this story so I could celebrate what a hero he was. And so I was like, that's great, Eric, man. Congratulations. That's so sweet. And he was like, yeah, yeah, feels pretty good. I was like, all right, so are you just going to walk her to class from now on? I remember he stopped and he went, what? He went, no. No, I'm going to walk with him. He said, she knows Jesus, he doesn't. So I'm going after that guy. And I was like, well, I'm glad to hear you say that. Um, (laughs) As your pastor, that's where I was leading you. I'm glad to see you've gained so much under my tutelage. But afterwards, I was like, what was that? I'll tell you what that was. That's the power of God in a human life. That's what that was. That's the power of God changing somebody that he can look at somebody and rather than seeing an enemy, seeing a potential friend, someone who is, can be changed by the grace of God. Right? And the last one is provide for them. Verse 44 and 45, but I say to you, love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your father who's in heaven. For he makes his son rise on the evil and the good and he sends rain on the just and the unjust. They're an agrarian society. What do you need to survive that you can't control? the sun and the rain. God holds those back, you die. And he says, God looks down at people who are doing good and those who are perpetrating evil, and he still decides to feed them. He still provides the raw materials they need to thrive. And he presents that as a picture of why we should be loving and kind to other people. God is willing to give basic provision to those who reject him. We should be willing to do the same. We should be a culture that's willing to bless and care for others by meeting their very tangible needs. And let me tell you, as a church, we do that. Many of you know, if you've been journeying with us, Love DC, a lot of that was us collecting a big percentage of your giving goes to relieving human suffering in the city to provide for people, whether they ever step through these doors, whether they ever praise the name of Jesus or not. In the name of Jesus, we love them in the hopes that they'll come to love him right back. But one of the simple ways that we can love our enemies is to provide for them. And again, enemy is even the person who blows you up, that you don't know anything about them. I pray for them. I greet them. I provide for them. It's very basic, but oh, those basics can change a culture. They really can. Last statistics were a million people enter this city on a weekday. It's probably less now, but there'll be about a thousand of us maybe here today if you greet 100 people in the next 60 days, not tomorrow, I'm giving you all summer, 10% of Washington, D.C. 
will be personally welcomed, greeted, seen, loved, cared for, and prayed for by someone who's in this building today. 10% is the critical mass you need to change a culture. If you own 10% of a society, you can change the whole society with 10%. We can change a city right here. That's not even counting all the other churches that are crushing today. If we decide to take up the simplicity Jesus has, DC is going to change on the charts, you know? And uh, maybe it'll be for the glory of Jesus. Let's close by saying, why should we love him? Some of you are like, well, Ben, that's all inspirational, but I don't want to do that. Good luck, guys. Why should we do it? Let me give you three reasons before we close. Number one is because Jesus said so. And as the kids in the room, let me just say, sometimes that's the only answer you need. Because I said so is a compelling argument from a parent. And Jesus said, I say to you, love your enemy. And if we love Jesus and he says, love them, we're meant to love them, right? Because we've talked about this. No Lord is an oxymoron. So if Jesus is Lord, he gets yes. And if he says, love your enemies, we say yes. Now, graciously, he gives us more than that because he's cool like that, but that's sufficient. Number two, let me just say, it's because those who know grace show grace. Jesus does not ask us to give what he's not provided. So he talks about love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who's in heaven. For he makes the sun rise on the evil and the good and sends the rain on the just and the unjust. Is he saying there that loving people is how you become a son of God? Well, no, and there's a lot of verses we could go to for that, Jesus says it in John 15, by this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to me by disciples. The bearing fruit does not make you a disciple, it proves that you are. He said in the same sermon, let your light shine before others so they may see your good work and give glory to your Father who's in heaven. Why, if you do something good, would they praise God? Because they know you're already connected to him. And so when they see his good through your life, they praise the God who changed you and bless them through you. So Jesus isn't saying do good in order to become a child of God. It's do good to show that you are. So the world will recognize your father is gracious and merciful even to the undeserving. So you be gracious and merciful even to the undeserving. That's where when Jesus told us to pray, one of the greatest prayers we could pray for our enemies is that God would forgive them. And remember, Peter asked him about that. How many times do I have to pray that? Seven? And Jesus said, no, 70 times seven. And he told a story of, of a king who was owned an enormous debt by one of his servants, and he forgave all of it. And then that servant refusing to forgive a tiny debt from a fellow servant. And Jesus showed the dichotomy of it. It's crazy to receive grace and not show grace. But those who've been loved much, love much. Grace received becomes grace extended. So Jesus is not asking you to give what you've not first received. But if you've come to know the grace of God available in Jesus, you have a resource that's meant to flow out to others. It's a natural thing. So we do it because he said so, and we do it because he empowered us to do so. And we do it because he says, your reward in heaven will be great. There is a future. God likes when we're kind to difficult people. And so he loves to reward us for doing that. Why does he say reward in heaven? Because all throughout scriptures and church history, Christians have died loving their enemies. You may love your enemies and they may kill you. 
You may be like Stephen who preaches a great sermon and they hit you with rocks till you die. But as he's falling to the ground, he prays like his savior did, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. And the last thing he saw was his savior, Jesus, standing. The savior that we were told is seated on the throne stands to accept a Stephen who looks like him. God delights to see us do what he did. Jesus gave his life for his enemies to make us friends. And when he sees us do the same, all of heaven celebrates a love like that because that's the picture of a changed heart. And here's the beauty of it. The last reward we can get is we just might make enemies into friends. We just might make enemies into friends. Martin Luther King preached on this text. It's in the book, Strength to Love. He told the story of Abraham Lincoln. He says, Lincoln tried love and left for all history a magnificent drama of reconciliation. He tells the story of when Lincoln was campaigning for presidency and one of his arch enemies was a man named Stanton. Many of you know this. Stanton met Lincoln earlier in their law careers, had a chance to try a case together, but Stanton turned to his friend and called Abraham Lincoln several words that I can't say in church. Uh, Ape was the nicest. He said a lot of other ugly things about him and blew him off. Wouldn't even talk to him, wouldn't make eye contact with him. And then when Lincoln ran for president, Stanton trashed him at every turn. And then when Lincoln became president, Lincoln was surveying who to put in his cabinet. And as Lincoln was trying to determine who to put in his cabinet, he needed a secretary of war because the nation was on the brink. And as he surveyed America, he found the ideal candidate, Edward Stanton. So he brought him on to his inner ring. And when he did so, this is what Martin Luther King says about it. I love it. He says, there was an immediate uproar in the inner circle when the news began to spread. Advisor after advisor was heard saying, Mr. President, you're making a mistake. Do you know this man, Stanton? Are you familiar with all the ugly things he said about you? He is your enemy. He will seek to sabotage your program. Have you thought this through, Mr. President? Mr. Lincoln's answer was terse and to the point. Yes, I know Mr. Stanton. I am aware of all the terrible things he has said about me. But after looking over the nation, I find he's the best man for the job. So Stanton became Abraham Lincoln's secretary of war and rendered an invaluable service to his nation and his president. And not many years later, Lincoln was assassinated. Many laudable things were said about him. Even today, millions of people still adore him as the greatest of all Americans. H.G. Wells selected him as one of the six great men of history. But of all the great statements made about Abraham Lincoln, the words of Stanton remain among the greatest. Standing near the dead body of the man he had once hated, Stanton referred to him as one of the greatest men that ever lived, and he said, he now belongs to the ages. If Lincoln had hated Stanton, both men would have gone to their graves as bitter enemies. Through the power of love, Lincoln transformed an enemy into a friend. It was the same attitude that made it possible for Lincoln to speak a kind word about the South during the Civil War when feelings were the most bitter. Asked by a shocked bystander how he could do this, Lincoln said, Madam, do I not destroy my enemy when I make them my friend? Martin Luther King says, this is the power of redemptive love. And speaking of his own day, he said, one day we shall win freedom, but not only for ourselves, we shall so appeal to your heart 
and conscience that we shall win you in the process and our victory will be a double victory. That I didn't just win the argument, I won the enemy. I didn't just win justice, I got to win the unjust as well. That's what Jesus did. On the cross, he was the just in punishing sin and the justifier in making a way for the sinner. We can call evil evil and still pray, God, would you make that enemy our friend? It's possible. I've seen him do it. And he can do it today. Some of you are in here and you're wondering what does it take to be right with God? And let me tell you, turning over a new leaf isn't it. You've turned over too many bad ones. It's looking to Jesus Christ who lived the perfect life you could not. He says here, be perfect as your heavenly father's perfect. And you're not that and neither am I. But Jesus is called he who knew no sin. He never touched the stuff, but he became sin for us so that we might be made right with God. While we were enemies, Christ died for us. While we were a long way off, he ran for us. And that kind of love transforms rebel humans into children of the king. And you let that love sweep over you. And then you let it flow through you to others. And we'll see neighborhoods change in a city change, but it starts in here. If you were encouraged by today's talk, be sure to rate us and hit subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you stream your podcasts. To experience other talks, videos, and live gatherings, visit us online at passioncitychurch.com or download the Passion Movement app. And again, thanks for listening to the Passion City Church DC podcast.